Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Forrest. And this is The Crosscut, the podcast that contextualizes the news of the day with the story, themes, and motifs of a treasured or explosive piece of cinema. This summer, <laughs> J. Robert Oppenheimer brings you the biggest bomb of the year in a world. <laughs> in a world. <laughs> Where we like to blow up things. <laughs> so like the regular world. So actually, yes, this Just is a historical document. The world. <laughs> yeah. In this world. In this world. Uh, yeah. So we, uh, we're talking Oppenheimer. Uh, currently nominated for 13 Academy Awards. Yeah. One short of tying the all-time record, which I think was Titanic with 14. Wow. So, yeah. That is. Yeah. Yeah. No, that tracks. All right. Yeah. So, uh, and there was one other one, but it's from like 1950 or something. And I don't, that does, doesn't count because mm-hmm. I don't remember what it was. Yeah. <laughs> Titanic also hits all of the, the checks, all the boxes that I listed off in our pre-show episode of oh, yeah. things that the Academy likes. That's correct. Yes. Uh, although the Academy did not like Leonardo DiCaprio for a long time. <laughs> it took him a long time to get that award. No. Oh yeah. No, like they may not have liked Leonardo DiCaprio for a long time, but they absolutely like it of, of all the things. It's a historic film. Yeah. It's a, it's a history film about white people written and directed by a white auteur mm-hmm. dude. Um, yeah. Tasteful nudity. Period drama. Sure. Yeah. All that stuff. All that stuff. Um, so 100% not surprising that that it has the most Oscar noms. Yeah. I was trying to see what all of the uh, nominations that I got were. Um, but I'll, I'll come up to it in just a second. But in the meantime, uh, I'm curious, you know, we, we talked a little bit in the pre-show about were you surprised that it was a Best Picture nomination? And, and uh your answer was no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but my my second and follow-up question is comparing it to the other two movies that we've seen yeah. uh, for this show, for this podcast, Barbie and The Holdovers. Is there one of those two that you would have put above Oppenheimer in your list? What do you mean by like above? Would you would you give best picture your best picture vote? You're you're in the academy now. You're representing all women because you would be the only one. No, I'm just kidding. Um, just kidding. Uh, but yeah, yeah. So you get to choose like your little list, right? What's your list look like? Does does Oppenheimer go in the middle of those two? Do you put you know it at the top? And then... I, I mean, I'm not really a person to. We've talked about we've talked about this. I think ad nauseum on on the podcast, which is that like my personal taste, right? does not necessarily align with what is quote unquote good. Okay. Or it, if, does that make sense? I mean, yeah, we've yeah, talked, no. we've talked yeah, about yeah, it. Of course, of course. You know? So I, I think that, um, it, honestly, it's like what of these films, which one am I going to watch again? Not Oppenheimer. Okay. Okay. Not, is not, not by choice. Like if it's on because of other people that I know, yeah, uh, who might uh, be sitting in this room. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm not gonna. I, I'm not gonna say turn it off. Look, but uh, look, look, look. <laughs> the 4K Blu-ray player is in my office, so I will be watching it in here. Don't worry. Yeah, that's, and that's hey man, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, but am, am I ever gonna watch it again? Probably not. No, 
I wasn't particularly like excited to watch it this time. It, it was a good movie. It it is done. It is technically done yeah. well. Everybody I, does a great job. Yeah, <laughs> and it's not my thing. I think that yeah, I think it's the opposite of the Twilight thing, where you're like, good movie, a decent number of stars. Yeah, you know, for, on your scale out of five stars. Um, didn't really like it, would not recommend. It's basically like your No, I mean, um, not really my thing. Yeah. Uh it's no, it's like it's it's one of those things where it's like it's not really my thing. Five out of five stars would not watch again. <laughs> there you go. That's right. Um, just so you know, Titanic won eleven out of its fourteen Oscars. So Okay. Uh to to if if Oppenheimer if Oppenheimer wins eleven, mm-hmm then it will beat uh, Titanic out in, in terms of win percentage. Sure. <laughs> I don't think that that's a thing, though. That's not apparently not a thing. Because, uh, like, if you just get nominated for one and then you win that one, like, man, Godzilla is, is about to bat 100, right? Uh, yeah, that's, that's 100%. That's right. <laughs> um, you know what's wild? Yeah. What? No. What? The, the three that they did not win, mm-hmm. one was- For Titanic. For Titanic. Yeah. Uh, one was Best Makeup. I don't know who they lost it to, whatever. Uh, one was Best Actress in a Supporting Role for Gloria Stewart, the the old lady. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, I, I get it. Like, you know, she was you great. You weren't believable no- enough as a batshit crazy old lady she who was tossed great, a but diamond she just wasn't into like, the ocean. Yeah, she wasn't in that much of the movie, you know? Um, they come back to her as a framing device. Um, but- uh, bummer so the, the the two things that surprised me kate winslet did not win she was nominated for best actress in a leading role oh, okay uh and dicaprio was not nominated <laughs> they like they took they like took <laughs> his like boyish charm and like all of that as like completely for granted like they they're like well he's not doing anything he's just being roguish and boyish it's like no, he was great in that movie. Like that movie doesn't work with like a, a, a Toby Maguire, for instance. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like he did pick... a great job. He, yeah. he did. He did a great job. Um, I am trying to imagine. Like, I mean, a Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt could have done that. He might have been a little too old at the time. No. What was this? Ninety-seven. Titanic was ninety-seven. Yes. Okay. He was uh, well. So, uh, nineteen ninety nine was when Fight Club came out. Yeah. yeah, I guess he would have been a little bit old. He had already it, done like the Devil's at the Devil's Own by yeah, that point. Yeah, you know, he was like adults. He just he was a straight up grown up. Yes, that's right. And and DiCaprio still had boyish charm. Yeah, he was he was fresh off of the uh, Romeo and Juliet yeah, at that point. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, all right, yeah. So, so Pitt could not have done it at that point. I, I mean, and either way, I, I, I think like a younger Brad Pitt could have pulled off that role, like the Thelma and Louise Brad Pitt. Maybe, yeah, maybe. Cool, even Cool World Brad but Pitt. Not, but no, but Brad Pitt's so twitchy. He's like he's like such a manic actor, and DiCaprio is so, especially like early DiCaprio roles. He's so smooth. Like, he's like, no, not, not Gilbert Grape, but like the aforementioned Romeo and I, Juliet. And this, he's like, he's like, he's so earnest and like heartfelt, but like, you can tell there's like a little something behind his, his countenance. Like, I don't know. He's, it's just a different actor. He's just a different I actor think a river runs through it. Brad Pitt is like chill and smooth. I don't know. I, that, I, I admit I have not seen that film. <gasps> and so. I have it on DVD. Uh, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, J. Robert Oppenheimer. <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, why don't we, I guess, start with the news as mm-hmm. we typically do. 
Um, and then we'll dive into the three hour excursion into 1940s America. Scene by scene, shot by shot. Yep. We're going to go over the whole thing. This yeah. is going to be a five hour podcast, yeah. folks. Also, not only that, we're going to cut this podcast so that it occurs in various orders. <laughs> Just That's right. So, yeah. So. That's right. Uh, there's also going to, you're not going to be able to see it, but like we're going to have like explosions going off as well, but it's a podcast. So you have to listen. Yeah, that's right. Although we are going to cut the sound out when the explosion goes off. So it, you know, you know what, just let's just get to the news. Let's do it. On January 23rd, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, the organization responsible for creating and maintaining the Doomsday Clock, reset it to 90 seconds from midnight, its closest position to date. Hmm. I would have a very hard time mm. if I were in that organization not setting it uh, to two minutes to midnight because that is an Iron Maiden song. Oh, is that right? Yes. <laughs> well, they said it to 90 seconds from midnight, but the Google Home told them that it was a minute, a minute and 30, 30 seconds, seconds to midnight. <laughs> good, good job, baby. My, my personal pet peeve. Right. Every time Forrest says, uh, like, tells our Google Home to set a timer for 90 seconds, it, it comes back with uh, a minute and 30 seconds. And he, I don't know. Do you just feel like it's correcting you? Is that the problem? I do. It's just like, I, what I want to hear are the words that I said to you back to me. Right. And so that it's just failing at that specific thing. If I were like, uh, Hey, did you clean your room? And you were like, yeah, I cleaned it. I'm like, mm, what is it in the sentence? <laughs> like if I'm specifically talking to Cassius. <laughs> sure. Sure. A room in this house was cleaned. Right. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I just need just confirmation with my own words back to me. I think one of the reasons that we chose this, that you wanted to do this as a topic is because you don't really know what the doomsday clock is. I, uh, okay. I assume it's yeah. malarkey uh, because whatever doomsday is, that point in the future, mm -hmm. uh, it was always getting closer. Yeah. So when you set it to 90 seconds or whatever, like, uh, uh, I don't know what that means. Like, what are you doing? Uh, why is this a thing that just pops up every six months where they're just like, oh, uh, guess what, everybody? Uh, death is always around the corner. So <laughs> congratulations, <laughs> humans. Uh, you've, you've fucked it up again. Like, what are these people doing? Like, I, I just find it to be theater and, and bad theater. I, well, okay. So I, I would say it's it's one of those things that I truly had not really, I mean, not really heard yeah. about or paid any attention to prior yeah. to this episode either yeah um because it, it does just sound like kind of a, a lot of nonsense yeah um but what i will say is it seems like the folks behind it have uh earnest intentions okay. of basically being like chicken little okay but have okay so have they read the story of or even seen the movie of chicken little starring zach braff <laughs> No, uh, because Chicken Little was saying the sky was falling when it, in fact, was not. Yeah, that's fair. So, I mean, I'm the one that's calling them Chicken Little, so okay. <laughs> they're not the ones. They're not like we're the Chicken Little so, Society. Okay. So they're so they're more like the canary in the coal mine. Um, what kind of bird are they? <laughs> An albatross? <laughs> are they? <laughs> right, right. Uh, well, okay. So I guess I guess back, backing up just a little bit. Um, the the doomsday clock is a metaphor. 
Uh-huh. So yes. it's not an actual warning, right? Like there's no, it's not telling any kind of actual time. Yes. Right? Yes. It is, it is just a metaphor for how likely we are to be fucked as a globe. Okay. As like, as like humanity. As, as a race. Yeah. Um, for our existence. Right. How uh, it is a, is a metaphor to describe visually for folks who are in a snapshot uh, how badly people are messing things up. Yeah. So here's my, my yeah. question, right? Yeah. Was it ever 24 hours? <laughs> was it ever 24 hours? No. Hey, that's a great question. So no, the original clock was actually uh, for 15 minutes, a 15 minute countdown to mid to midnight. Uh, 15 minutes out of a full day? Yes. But can we start at zero? Can't we just like... Well, uh, no, we can't. <laughs> we didn't even have one good day. Damn, America. Well, so, Damn, I mean, I guess... We, if a world? We can talk about history because we... I mean, this is a whole movie about history. Uh-huh, yeah. Right? And this actually ties very much into sort of the end of where this yeah, film... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, Oppenheimer at the end, feel, here's that clock ticking. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, I guess let me let me back up uh, just a little bit, and and we can oh stroll gosh. down memory lane. Are you cutting to the past? <laughs> Are you okay? Yeah, let's do a quick edit to Ooh. some past things. Do you hear raindrops out the window in a puddle? And is that recalling memories of the universe in your mind? It is okay. Actually, I'm hearing actually just our dog snoring on the floor. <laughs> same thing. Whatever. Same thing. Same thing. The universe is everywhere. It's in everything. All right. So uh, the origin of the 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 doomsday clock mm-hmm. is dates back to an organization called the Chicago Atomic Scientists. Okay. And this was a group of scientists who had participated in the Manhattan Project. Right on. And well, because Chicago plays a big role, is one of the major cities in the the four cities that they operate the Manhattan Project out of, with Los Alamos in the middle. That's right. Chicago was was the northern point. That's right. So, so these are folks who had a, a big hand in the creation of the bomb. And basically, after the bombings in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they began to publish a newsletter um, via mimeograph. Oh, yeah, you did. Nice. <laughs> I had to look up what a mimeograph was yeah. because I truly uh, did not. So, I mean, it's basically like an old-timey photocopying machine yes. for small batches. Yes. The original uh, zine. This was a zine. That's yeah. what I was going to say. <laughs> These were just a bunch of hipsters, man. <laughs> was was David Hill one of them? Did, it, did you did you find that in any of the research? David da- David Hill was the um, the guy who was played by Rami Malek in the film, uh, which is was so funny. The first time I saw it, um, I saw it in theaters in IMAX or whatever, and you're like middle of the way through the movie. You're like, all right, three hours, I'm halfway through, cool. And all of a sudden, Rami Malek pops up, and he's not doing anything. He's just, like, taking notes. Right, right. And it's like, what? Why did they, like, I guess people will do anything to be in a Christopher Nolan film. And so he's just, like, standing there, and, like, he gets the clipboard slapped out of his hand by <laughs> Killian Murphy. It's just like, <laughs> I was like, why are you here? But he ends up becoming an important character at the end of the film. Right. Um. I... I, I have a list of the founder, the the co-founder, like the, yeah. the editors um, and original editors, and then a bunch of contributors that yeah. had um, were highlighted on, a, I don't know, this was maybe from the Wikipedia page, but um, I don't see anybody by that okay. name it's, on here. I mean, it's fine. I, but, I, was just, I was just curious because he he had a big 
part in the end of the movie. So one of, one of the people that was a contributor to this publication, however, was J. Robert Oppenheimer. Hey, there you go. I read his article. Oh, okay. It was basically just hit, like a, a book about his life. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was an insanely long article. I just kept going and going. I was like, how far down do I have to go? And he's just like, let me start from the beginning and tell you about my boyhood. <laughs> it just goes all the way straight through and basically recounts uh, in order the plot yeah. for the film. Have you seen the movie Oppenheimer? It's that linked. is about me. My name is J. Robert Oppenheimer. It's, it's linked to in the show notes. I don't know uh, that I have a good Oppenheimer. I don't have a good, don't have a good Oppie impersonation. No, but you know what, though? I did see photos, obviously, of him. Yeah. And man. Very similar looking, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Killian yeah. Murphy was an amazing choice. Yeah. Well, and had worked with Nolan. This is, I think, their fifth film together. Right. Um, And uh, had to, like, he's already a naturally, like, thin person. Right. But he had to, like, lose a bunch of weight. Oh. I think... Oppenheimer himself was he used my height. He's like 5'11". Uh, but he had to lose, or he didn't have to. He just got down to like 115 pounds when he was in the Manhattan Project. Holy moly. Yeah, just like emaciated. Nobody needs to have that recreated on screen, though. Yeah, I, and, and there's like rumors like Killian Murphy was like eating one almond a day. And I never believe those. He was an almond mom? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I never believe that because like there's no difference to your body. It's actually worse probably to eat an almond than it is to like not eat anything. Um, but the like he's not eating one almond a day. That's ridiculous. And you don't have to eat one almond a day to get really skinny. You can have one bowl of cereal a day. Like if you're if you're at like 400 calories a day. Right. Like you were going to get emaciated. <laughs> but also you can just be kind of wiry like Killian Murphy, Murphy. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. wear baggy suits. Yeah. Like they do have him look more emaciated as he gets older and he's going through the process with right. like his security clearance. He's a little more um, him his normal self when he's younger and stuff. And I think it does actually play a big role in helping him age the character as he starts to get more emaciated, uh, you know, he looks older. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I, acting is hard. That's one of the hard parts of doing it is the physical transformation. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, 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 I think I'm just thinking about him in 28 Days Later, and he was very skinny. Yeah, that was, he was, a also, kid. was 20, 30 years ago, something like that. So. Yeah. Have you seen that? It is almost impossible to see uh, right now. It's not like streaming anywhere. I don't think it's available on VOD. I, might I saw have, it a long time ago. I might have the DVD. That's probably the best looking version of it because I don't think it ever got a high def release because it was filmed on video. It was filmed on like a, a DV cam. Yeah. I'll have to check that. Okay. All right. Well, anywho, uh, getting back to the Chicago Atomic Scientists yes, yes, yes. and the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, which was basically the magazine that came out of that mimeographed newsletter that they created. So this is the publication's name still to date, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. Okay. And what's interesting is it's sort of used interchangeably with the organization at this point. So okay. I, I actually don't recall if this is still the Chicago atomic scientists that are in charge of it, or if they are just now just the bulletin of atomic scientists and separate from yeah. that group. But the original focus was basically because there was this huge outcry after the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and there was a growing international interest in understanding what this meant for humanity and yeah. what this meant for 
the like what atomic weaponry and warfare basically meant for yeah. the the world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It also makes sense that it would have been in Chicago because they were very worried about the bomb. Oh no. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, no, but I mean, it, it also makes sense just because there's a very uh, like storied academic tradition in Chicago as well. Like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like um, the University of Chicago for sure. Yeah. Um, right. And so basically uh, in 1945 was when they originally sort of started their publication. But mm-hmm. in 1947 was when they came up with this metaphor. Okay. That's interesting. Shortly after the war. Shortly after the war, and but not only that, specifically in reaction to the Soviet Union developing atomic weapons. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So that was the year that it, that we the, basically found out that the that the Soviet Union was developing their own atomic weaponry. Right. And in the beginning of the Cold War. Right. Exactly. And so the uh, one of the co-editors, uh, Hyman Goldsmith. I don't mm-hmm. know if he was in the film or not, but uh, he asked this this woman uh martle i'm i'm i I don't know if i'm saying i mean that sounds like a name from the 40s and 50s right martle martle langsdorf uh to create the cover for the magazine and so so she's actually her background was as a landscape artist but she (laughs) had an eye for design yeah but she happened to be married to one of the physicists that was in the manhattan manhattan project named alexander langsdorf okay and so she came up with uh, she came up with the metaphor, and she also came up with the design. They, I think they originally they they were going to use the symbol for uranium. Okay, sure. But they want they realized that the the clock would basically give a more of a sense of urgency. So that was the reason that they settled on the clock, and I mean they settled at a fifteen minute clock mm-hmm. because. Because they, the Cold War had just started. Because we so, already yeah. have the nuclear weapons. Because yeah. we're already fucked. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, um, what we'll talk about, we'll talk about uh, the theory of nuclear armament uh, shortly. <laughs> but but no, the, the thing that I, I'm curious about mm-hmm. is if it started at 15 minutes. Right. Did it ever get more than 15 minutes? And then sub-question, once it got less than 15 minutes, did it ever go back up right so we ever go from like two minutes to like back up to three minutes or whatever right well so it didn't start at 15 minutes there was just the clock showed 15 minutes okay and it started at seven minutes oh okay i see so it wasn't a 24 hour a day clock it was a 15 minute clock it was a and we 15 minute clock down. it was just like the it's, it's basically like the a quarter of a of a circle understood okay All to right. show like just the visual imagery of so it. so if we were to get back to the best we could hope for it would be 15 minutes well so uh that's also um a, an interesting question um the the clock itself has was uh was set back eight times okay and has been set forward 17 times Okay. The, it's all about the magnitude, though. That's the key. <laughs> that's, yes. Well, so the farthest from midnight that it has ever been was 17 minutes. Cool. So it did go further back when, than 15. When was that? When should we travel back to? Sure. So that was 1991. That great year. Great year. Yeah. Well, I mean, Nirvana and if you think still about it. Records and- yeah. I mean, 1991 was kind of the end of, like, kind of the end of the Cold War. Back to the Future 2, I think. <laughs> <laughs> things were looking so up was, we really yeah, thought we were, we were gonna we were have in, hoverboards we, we had done it 
We had lace-up sneakers that were going to lace themselves. The world was well, good. Well, we, we had a future that promised that, yes. Yeah. So the United States and the Soviet Union at that point had signed the first Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty. Okay, yep. And also the Soviet, yeah, and also the Soviet Union had dissolved on December 26th. So basically that uh, those two things combined made it so that it was the farthest away. That's so interesting to me that it started out as a sort of a descriptor of the Cold War specifically and has kept going, even though it seems as though it's not necessarily tied to atomic destruction anymore. It's more just like general awfulness that we have going on in the world. Yeah. Well, so, okay. This is a, (laughs) this is a chart. I'll show it to you really quickly, a couple different things. And I'll show you, this is, this is basically a chart showing from its Mm. inception, what it has looked like. Okay. So it's been real bad since uh, 91. (laughs) It's been, I mean, it got all the way up there, right there at that peak. And then it's just been bound, down, 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 went up just a little bit. Actually, I do think that describes my life pretty well. In 2010. And then it just kept going down. I think this describes just the way that I have perceived the world since I've grown up. It's just like, it had, it's just, there's only worth, there's no, there's no positive in the future. Space Jam was the apex. I mean, yeah, well, And then uh, all downhill from there. Yeah. But I actually (laughs) think that this is like, something that is echoed in social media sometimes that I see, which is like what people in older generations don't understand is that people in our generation do not see any reason to be optimistic about what the future holds. Because by the time I was seven years old, we had peaked and everything since then has been, Oh, uh, the, the mass incarceration, it's been 9-11 and the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. It's been a financial collapse and another financial collapse and the election of the worst human in the world to the office of the presidency okay. and an insurrection in my own country that we they're also, going to try and do again. We like, also just like kicked off our like teenage years with mass shootings. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And by the way, the quotidian American violence that can just happen anywhere. Yep. Um, Even so, yeah. at an NFL parade. Yeah. And right. so it's like. Just, just, just living that experience. It's like, what do you think? Oh, and all, by the way, every, the price of everything has gone up and our wages have stagnated until very recently. So it's like, even, even just the purest, like self, most selfish terms, like things are not good. So like, I feel like this, you know what? I'm on board of the clock now. I'm on board. <laughs> it, it, it is accurate. It's right on time is what it is. Right. Well, I mean, so the, the clock did originally get designed to, um, to to describe specifically the threat of to humanity from nuclear weapons. Yeah. But it also is uh, now, I think, kind of, as you mentioned, describing the threat from a bunch of other things yeah yeah well and so my guess is like uh climate change is probably a huge one that has taken priority in that that calculation right absolutely so uh nuclear warfare obviously is the first on the list but there's also climate change um global pandemics oh yay yeah Wonder and why they uh, threw that in there. even more recently artificial intelligence yeah, i'm not that worried about that one uh, well, so, I mean, essentially what they are doing is they are just trying to monitor new development, new developments in like life sciences and technology mm. and, and whatever. And, and so it is one of the things that they are just keeping an eye on. Yeah. Basically. I, think, I think when AI determines that it's time to exterminate humanity, it will cross over from artificial intelligence to actual intelligence. It's like, 
Yeah, that's probably the right call. <laughs> probably not wrong about this one. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I well, yeah. It's like I'm not saying I would have done it, but I understand. By the time you know we know it's too late. Yeah, that's that's also true. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um what's interesting about the the changes I was going through is that basically the um the the first time that it mentioned anything that wasn't just purely having to do with uh, nuclear weapons or, or whatever, I, I think was 2012. That was the first time I noted mm, from okay. the chart that was on Wikipedia. So in in 2012, we lost a minute on the doomsday clock and went from six minutes to five minutes to midnight uh, because of a lack of political action, global political action uh, to address climate change. Oh yeah. Also okay. the weapon stockpiles. That was that was also on the list. Yeah, it's wild. It, I just wonder like, I know it's a metaphor. No, it's not yeah. supposed to be specific, but like, if like n- you know, one of the nuclear powers in the world launches a bunch of missiles, does like some scientist have to like drop everything he's doing and run over and move the clocks to like <laughs> one second to midnight? That's a good question. I think that they update it once a year. Okay. They they they're probably gonna. It's it's not looking good though. Other I mean, things have happened even since it was sure um, it was updated. And actually, so um, one final fact about this before we move on. But um, the the date that it was set this year, yeah, was January twenty third. Oh, okay. Do you know what also happened on January twenty third? I have no idea. No. The Academy of Motion Pictures announced that Oppenheimer had been nominated for thirteen Oscars. Oh, well, there you go. Hey, what a segue. Hey. Thank you. Well, <laughs> so with that being said, let's just recount what those 13 Oscars are. All right. If you might be interested. Uh, so obviously we're talking Best Picture, um, but that includes Best Director, Christopher Nolan. Mm-hmm. Best Actor, uh, Killian Murphy. Best Supporting Actress in uh, Emily Blunt. Okay. Uh, Best Supporting Actor in Robert Downey Jr. Adapted Screenplay, because this was adapted from the, the book American Prometheus. Uh, production design, costume design, cinematography for Hoyt van Hoytema, uh, who was, uh, and he started working with Christopher Nolan in the Interstellar um, days, which okay. we covered on this podcast before. Yes. Uh, he's he's the man. Dude's great. Uh, nominated for best editing, best hair and makeup, best sound, and best original score. Uh, I, of those, like, I'm fairly confident this movie wins best editing. Um like just almost certainly because there is so much intercut back and forth between different periods of life, right? Uh, real and perceived versions of the universe, uh, like explosions and 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 dialogue and all of this stuff. Like the movie is is chaotic and frenetic, even though like to your point, it is like a, a period piece about you know American history. You you say that and it sounds boring. And then you try and watch this movie and you're like, wait, what? what's going on here? Who's this guy? Why are they doing this? Where are we in time? Like, what's going on? And so I think he knew Nolan tries to combat some of that, um, like boredom that's inherent in these kind of historical biopics with being chaotic in the edit room. Um, and I think it works incredibly well. This movie was probably uh, a bear to edit and they they pulled it off. So I think that's the one that like I would put, like if I were betting, if I were a betting man, I would bet that they're going to win on editing. I would need to see the list of who else was nominated for yeah. best editing. So best editing is also Poor Things, Killers of the Flower Moon, The Holdovers, and Anatomy of a Fall. Yeah. 
I mean, from what I know about those, I, again, it's it, if I were betting, this is based purely off of nothing other than <laughs> me. Speculation. Yeah, yeah purely spe- speculation. If I were but not, and this is not like even based off of what I think would be the best version of editing, but yeah. the it, I, I still just get drawn back to that that idea that the Academy really loves to award best to the most. Yeah, I mean, it's almost certainly, yes. Right. Oh, best makeup? You mean the most makeup, yeah, the whale. Best, best production design? Oh, you mean where are things the showiest? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Best best editing? The most editing. <laughs> yes, I think that's right. Um, so anyway, the in terms of just as we walked through those awards, I'll give you a couple of uh, little bits and pieces here on who's going to be up for those. So Christopher Nolan uh, is the the writer. He is the sole credited screenplay writer. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly enough, um, he wrote the screenplay in first person. Um, so it was like, I did this, I did that. You know, instead of like, and then Oppenheimer opened the door or whatever. Right. And he wrote it in first person, which is Matt Damon read the script and was like flabbergasted. He's like, I've never seen someone write a script like this. That's insane. <laughs> um, I think it also like doesn't do a great amount for Christopher Nolan's like trying to battle his great man complex <laughs> to say like, oh, I'm writing a story about a great man and I'm going to put it in first person as though I am him. Mm-hmm. Like, mm, fair enough. Also that that article um, that Oppenheimer wrote for the bulletin, first person. Well, I mean, maybe course, he yeah. just copy pasted. <laughs> he was like, boop, boop, boop. There we go. <laughs> yeah, AI, uh, I'm going to feed you this and write a screenplay, please. That's right. Yeah. Um, in terms of uh, DP, we talked about Hoyt van Hoytema. Uh, the one thing I want to mention that that he said was um, he said that not a single frame in this movie was ever storyboarded. So they basically put everything together. They got on set, and Christopher Nolan was like, he was like, you're kind of free to do whatever it is that you want. However, we want to capture this. We'll figure it out together. We'll talk about it. We'll whatever. But I don't have a storyboard. I'm not trying to find you like capturing this specific image or whatever. Um, and then they also decided or, or chose as a matter of principle to shoot as few takes of a scene as possible. Um, and that's really hard to do because they're on IMAX uh, for the, for most, most of the film, right? Right. And so because IMAX um, has a shallower focus, like um, uh, depth of field, like, uh, sometimes actors are, like, out of focus. Right. But, like, they were like, that actually felt right. Like, it actually feels okay to see people sort of passing in and out of focus as you're, like, maybe on a close-up of them or something. Because the 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 underlying theme of this film is, like, are we doing the right thing? Are we doing the wrong thing? Are we saving the world? Are we destroying the world? And even, like, it's even textual. Like, when they say, like, you know, oh, this is J. Robert Oppenheimer. What's the J stand for? Nothing. It's like... He did because he stood for they, they perceived that he stood for nothing, right? Right, right. Um, and so the idea was, you know, if people go in and out of this, it's because they're at a very turbulent time in American history and they don't necessarily know where they stand. So it makes sense for the cinematography to to speak to that. It also maybe they were trying to say film, but <laughs> it does work. So. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's definitely the case, but it also the film feels like it is the recollections of Oppenheimer. Yeah. And recollections are imperfect and fuzzy. You are a genius. Yes. So. (laughs) Yes, I am. Yep. Uh, Just like uh, Oppie, 
No, so so what they said was that there were two important parts of the film that we tend to go back and forth between. Mm-hmm. There are the the parts that are in color that are Oppenheimer's journey through the world, mm-hmm. and then there are the parts that are in the black in black and white, uh, which are representative of uh, Louis Straw's uh, confirmation hearing. Right. And the confirmation hearing was recorded. Right. It's 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 documented. You can read the transcripts of the confirmation hearing. Mm-hmm. So it was shot in black and white because it is there on the page in on the black page and white. It's true, right? Yeah. Oppenheimer's is it's obje- objective. Oppenheimer is subjective, which is we know about this because of the things he's written or the interviews he's given or whatever, but we mm-hmm. have to piece this together as though it is the mind of this individual perceiving things. And when we see his perception, we see hallucination, imagination, uh d- different um characters acting in different ways at different times we see he's he's brought out to speak to a school uh like in a, a gymnasium at some point and everyone's clapping and stomping their feet right his perception is is completely in, inverted yes. on himself yeah and in what he sees is he sees the uproar but he also sees like chaos and he also sees death and he also sees crying but he sees cheering like you know his world is not one thing his world is uh, quantum, for lack of a better term, like it is open to interpretation. Right. I mean, I guess I, I assume that that's basically just his conscience playing out in real time. Yes. Him, yeah, him, very much so. Him seeing this, realizing the impact that his actions could or will have and that, you know, that internal struggle that apparently leads him to become very emaciated in yeah. real life. Yeah. And, and so, uh, I thought that was that was the, the cinematography plays into that incredibly well. Um, I mentioned that so there were two things that I, I wanted to bring up about that: the black and white footage mm-hmm. that they filmed um, actually had to be uh, they, they, like Kodak, the film that created the IMAX film, mm-hmm. or the company that created the IMAX film, had to invent black and white IMAX film. They had never done it before. They weren't interested in just doing that in post. No, no. They wanted to shoot it in black and white. So they produced a limited supply of what, what they call double X black and white um, in 70 millimeter. Um, the film stock was chosen specifically for its heritage. It was originally sold to photographers as Super XX during World War II and was very popular with photojournalists at the time. So they actually took that chemical process that made the foot film that was around in world war two mm-hmm. and blew it up to 70 millimeter so that they could run that through. And that was pretty like you, you can, there are only a few people in the world who could ever ask for that. And Christopher Nolan is one of them. It's yeah. kind of crazy. So great to see you, you, you love to see people pushing boundaries on, on what is an, uh, you know, hundred year old process, right? Like film is not dead. Film still evolves can do new things with it. It's great. I'm, I'm going to ask a silly question. Why wouldn't they just do it in post? I mean, I think part of it is the authenticity. Um, and mm-hmm. part of it is when you desaturate things in post, when you color correct things in post, um, it is better to start from a truer version mm-hmm. um, than, you know, what you would have otherwise. Right. So yeah, the the film stock itself just has different properties when you are shooting on black and white versus color or whatever. And so if you're putting it through a digital process and then adapting that, um, you know, in the edit, it's just going to look different than if you're shooting it on the natural film stock. And so because they could, they decided they would, right? Right. And look, they certainly could have done it in post. 
Like that, that's absolutely an option. Yeah. It just wouldn't have looked the same. Wouldn't have looked as crisp and wouldn't have had the same texture in the character. So if you have the ability to, to do it, by all means do it. Right. Right. I mean, I guess it's like, uh, the difference of if you were going to press something into vinyl and listen to that versus create something digitally and then add effects to make it sound like vinyl. Right. Or, or perhaps, uh, rather it's like, you take vinyl and you record that onto a cassette tape or a CD from the output, like the, the output channel from your, your vinyl recording. Right. It's like, yeah, you're listening to vinyl on the CD, but it's like still not the same thing. There's like some loss in translation, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's probably what they were trying to avoid by, by actually shooting it on black and white. Gotcha. Um, the other thing I'll mention is uh, initially this film was set up for 85 days. Uh, of shooting. Okay. And they, the production designer nominated for an Academy Award, Ruth DeJong, um, said, you know, I have to build, <laughs> I have to build a city. I have to build those Alamos for you. Right. I have to do all of this stuff. Um, and, and she was like, uh, I need here. And, and, and Nolan was like, look, just bring to us whatever you need. Like, t- just tell us how much it's going to cost. She comes back with like a, a thing that's like $20 million. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And, she, and he's like, nope, stop, stop. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and what it, what he did in order to make the ability for them to actually create Los Alamos and all of that space, uh, they cut 30 days of shooting off of the film. So they went from 85 days to 55 days, which is incredible. Like that's wild to think about. You're losing basically a third of your days to shoot this film. And this is a three hour movie. And it's not simple to shoot, right? Yeah. And so it's like... So he's like, we're going to do it in three he's days. Like, he's like, we have to hustle. <laughs> yeah. It's like, we have to hustle uh, and be on our, our shit. And so one of the things that... And this is goes to costume, um, is actors had to show up on set in costume. Hmm. And like, just be ready. Like, like no showing up to go to your trailer and get it, whatever. Like, they'll do makeup and stuff on the on the scene whenever, when you're in your costume. But like, show up in wardrobe. You're in wardrobe, you're standing and ready to go while we're here. And then when we're done, you're, you're, you're out of here and we're done. But like, like, it's like, we're going to move quick. We don't have a, like Hoyt Van Hoytema is throwing that IMAX camera on his fucking shoulder and just like carrying it around. It's like, yeah. all right, here's our shot. Let's go. Right. Like it's, they were quick about this thing. It's, it was, it's, it's, it's interesting though, because I, I guess I don't know why that would save you time to have your actors show up in costume as opposed to just having them show up at 5 a.m. and sit around and wait. Well, because so part of the time that you lose on sets is yeah. prep. And so let's like what typically happens on a set is you have a call time. Let's say it's mm-hmm. 5 a.m. Right. And people show up on set and they start getting all the equipment out. They start lighting stuff. They start doing all of the work of putting the film together. Right. Right. Um, and while they're doing that, the actors are in their trailers, they're getting dressed, they're doing their makeup, all that. And and there are limits on days. So you can go 12 hours a day um, unless you're, you know, paying overtime and all this other stuff. But like um, you can go 12 hours on a day. And so if you're wasting time, two hours in the morning to get everybody in costumes and makeup and waiting, wasting your lighting setups and all this stuff, it's just burdensome, Right. Yeah, I guess I just assumed that people were getting into costume in the time that they were setting up the lights. 
So what I think that they did in this case mm-hmm. was, first of all, you have a lot of exterior. Yeah. Right, shooting outside a lot. So right. you're not doing a lot of, you're using all that natural light. You're using natural lighting, yeah. yeah. And then the other side of it is when you're indoors is that you can shoot in the same places for a few days in a row. Okay. And kind of set up lights so that you are um, not required to like break them down and reset them up every time. Right. And because they're not storyboarding, they can actually use the environment as it exists, right? It's like, oh, I wanted a shot that's like this, right? Mm-hmm. If you think about that in like setting up in a storyboard, okay, well, now we got to go move the lights around to get them in this space to set it up this way, right? right? But actually, if you're not storyboarding, you can say, well, here's how we have the lights set up. Right. It doesn't work over here. It works over here. I'm not tied to my storyboards. I'm just finding what works in the moment. So gotcha. you can actually move a lot faster. So, I mean- it seems that that's how it, it appar- works for them. Apparently. Yeah. yeah. It almost it makes me think of like how they may have done it in the early days of film before things got really like regimented. I, I would imagine that they would sort of do a similar thing where they set up their lights and they're like, okay, we're just going to do it like a play. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's very, I mean, definitely very clear in like the Buster Keaton days or whatever. Right. It's like if they had lights, first of all, they didn't move them or reset them up because those things weighed like uh, 200 pounds. Those are the lights. I mean, they're, they they would like light things yeah. on fire. <laughs> they were mm-hmm. so hot and yeah. stuff. So it's like, you kind of set them up once and then you just shoot it. Yeah. And so I think similarly here, they were either outdoors and they were just using bounce cards or supplemental lighting, but it was not a lot. Or they were indoors, but they had the space for a little while and they could actually set it up to shoot over you know, time. I feel like you don't want to advertise this too much to the studios because then they're like, so you're telling me you could do it cheaper if you wanted and get <laughs> yeah. nominated. So you're telling for me you could do thir- 13 Academy Awards and only 55 days. Hmm. Good to know. Good to know. Good to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to adjust your, your contract next time. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, the other thing I wanted to mention, um, we do have some nominees for acting. Okay. Uh, obviously Killian Murphy as right. J. Robert Oppenheimer. Emily Blunt as Kitty Oppenheimer, uh, bringing in those sheets. Mm-hmm. And Robert Downey Jr., uh, I mentioned as Louis Straws. Right. Uh, we also have a, a murderer's row of other actors, known faces in Hollywood. There were so many people yeah. in this film. Alden Ehrenreich, Jason Clark, Kenneth Branagh, David Krumholtz, Josh Hartnett, Florence Pugh, Matthew Modine, Matt Damon, Dane DeHaan, Jack Quaid, Benny Safdie, James Urbaniak, Rami Malek, Casey Affleck, and... Yes, Gary Oldman as Harry Truman. <laughs> Safdie, as in the Safdie brothers? Correct. Okay. Yep. So uh, he was the guy who played uh, Edward Teller, who was like the kind of like sweaty dude who was, who was originally like the math says we're going to blow up the atmosphere. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, and who is Truman? Gary Oldman. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I did not catch that. Yeah, I didn't either the first time I saw it. And then people were like, can you believe Gary Oldman's in this movie? Like, as whom? The uh, old man as the old man yeah uh so um one of the things that nolan said that i thought was funny uh was he said he cast all of these famous people in these roles so that people could easily identify them with them and like tell them apart honestly i that was my assumption because i was like this is the the only reason that i can tell all these white dudes apart is because i know them already from somewhere else i'm like oh that's josh hartnett Okay, the Josh Hartnett guy is saying blah 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 yeah. blah. Oh, Matt Damon just told me blah 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 blah. He seems like a hard nose. Like right. that's 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 literally the only reason. And I had that thought. So hey, man, it worked. It worked. I'm also curious if he says that, but in fact, 
he was just like, yeah, I'm just flexing. No, I honestly. <laughs> I, just, I just got, I just got uh, Academy Award winner Rami Malek doing eight lines of dialogue in my movie because I'm Christopher Nolan and I can do that. I, I honestly had that thought as we were watching it. I was like, well, good. It, truly, that is the reason. It's because, you, know, you know why you had that thought? Why? Because you're a genius. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, and also, um, I, I think that there are big names in this, mm-hmm. right? Obviously, Matt Damon, Robert Downey Jr. Those yeah. are big names. But Dane DeHaan is not a big name. Character actor, but he's, kn- he's great. I know of him from a couple of different things. Yeah. Um, but he's not he's not Robert Downey Jr., Matt Damon level of, right. of being known, but he has a face that people know. Right. And there are several folks in the, I mean, most of the folks of the, of the list that you list, listed off, yeah. I'm like, I, I couldn't tell you their names. Right, right, But right. I know their faces. Totally, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think the ones that I, I noticed most, uh, other than, of course, Matt Damon, would be Florence Pugh, who has quite a role in this film. <laughs> um, right, right. And, uh, of course, Casey Affleck, who only has one scene in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Remy Malek, who is, is an important character towards the end. But, like... Yeah, if you were like, uh, oh, there's Matthew Modine. I'm like, I re- I called him. Like, I saw him when he came into the, the film. I was like, oh, hey. But then it was like, just back to back to watching the movie, you know? Right. Um, Wait, who is Matthew Modine? Uh, white-haired gentleman who was in the interrogation, whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm looking at his photo, and I vaguely recall the name. Yeah, I think when he came on screen, you're like, oh, hey. But, like, I don't know if you, like... I don't know what you knew him from or whatever, or if you just saw a face that you recognized. Yeah. I mean, this is Full Metal Jacket, but I haven't seen Full Metal Jacket. I was very young in that, which is a different Yeah. Like, yeah. I, haven't, I haven't seen that in in a very long term, long time. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't know exactly what it is that I've seen him in, but like the name sounds familiar. And yeah. So, um, I, he seems like he was like a bad guy in something. I guess he was in Stranger Things. Oh, he's the doctor in Stranger Things. Yes. Okay. Yeah. He was a bad guy in Stranger Things. Yeah. Great. Um, so apparently Matt Damon was on a break from acting as a promise to his wife, but he had one condition. He said he would go, his break would go on hold if Christopher Nolan called. <laughs> and so as luck would have it, Nolan offered Damon the role and uh, break was on hold. I, now, I love that Matt Damon and his wife have like the version of a, of a, a hall pass. Yeah, yeah. But just for, for acting. acting. Yeah. That's very funny. Well, so he was, he, as we talked about in uh, our previous episode on Interstellar, he'd worked with Nolan before on that. So, right, right. Um, I guess that was the one thing where he was like, oh, would I go back to, you know, back to acting for a little while if uh, Kevin Smith called? It's like, mm, no, <laughs> but for Nolan, I'll do it. Um, and the, the other thing was, um, this was the first time that Killian Murphy played a lead in a Nolan film. So he'd been in, all three of the Batmans. Right. He'd been in Inception. Yeah. Um, I think there was one more, but I he forget. He was Sandman in, in the Batmans. No. Not Sandman. With Killian Murphy? Yeah. Sandman is a Spider-Man villain. Well, no, no, no. Not Sandman. I guess that's not the right word, but he had the thing on his face. He did have a bag on his face. And he would and like he, and blow he had, sand into people's it's faces. It's sand, baby. It was to a, make it, them fall asleep. It, it was a drug that did not fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> to make them have hallucinations. Yes. He was the scarecrow. Scarecrow. <laughs> ah. Need you to go back and watch Batman the Animated Series, please. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he, and then there was one other, I think he might've been briefly in, um, uh, Tenant or um, 
Dunkirk. He was in one of those, but ones with the British folk. Um, but yeah, he was in Inception also. He was the guy who got incepted. Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the um, the only other thing I'll mention about the movie really that I think is um, you know kind of interesting to me is that the 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 actual detonation itself. Yeah. So Nolan was rumored to have asked for an actual small nuclear explosion that he could film in uh, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a false. Apparently, he never asked for that. Oh, I thought there was a nuclear explosion no, no. for this film. There was not. No, uh, and 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 Nolan is like a little bit concerned that that is his reputation <laughs> that he thought. That, that's, They're like, look, if you're going to ask the IMAX people to make you special film, yeah. you're just going to ask for anything. Right. So the, the <laughs> Trinity detonation scene um, uses both practical effects, so actual explosions, but right. also digital compositing. So there were multiple explosions that were performed practically um, with a hybrid of gasoline, propane, aluminum, and magnesium. Um, and they had very large miniatures associated with those explosions. So when you see the big tower and stuff, they did a a large miniature version of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they were filmed at high speeds. So that's why it's that nice slow motion of like the rolling fire and stuff like that. Right. So that's slow-mo. And then they shot from multiple angles, of course. And then they layered those those effects digitally to create that iconic mushroom cloud. So they did have a mushroom cloud. It was like small. And then they- It was a nitty bitty mushroom. Yeah, little- little, A little toadstool. That's right. Yeah, uh, Super Mario Brothers. That's, That's right. right. Uh, so, so they had they put it all together. But I, I, as a person who at one point in time literally thought that he set off not a nuke, but like some some larger armistice. I it legit seem thought that. he set off a nuke. I genuinely was like, oh, okay, that sounds right. That sounds like a thing he would do. I, you know, as the government is not currently testing nuclear weapons, uh, to the best of my knowledge, it wouldn't be a test. Just be like, I'm making a film. But I don't think that's a request that you can get the Department of Defense to go along with. It's like, this is a film that I would like to win an Oscar for. Please let me have a nuclear weapon. I guess. I don't know what the rules are with nuclear weapons. Um, I'm pretty sure you're not allowed to use them in movies. <laughs> See, now you now I know. Now you know. So, uh, yeah, that that's that that is all I wanted to cover from the, the film. Uh, I didn't have time to listen to all of the director's commentary and all that stuff. So. And, you know, I recommend everybody buy this on physical media and uh, get your own get your own version of the director's commentary. I wanted to cover some of the big things, but um, more than anything, uh, we've we've talked about reception overall a right. little bit between the two of us. I think that I, I mean, I like the film more than you do, like as a as a project, but also as like an experience of watching it. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think that. It's it's a insane film that got made, and uh, the more I read about it, the more I'm just like, this is it's wild that it got made the way it did in the amount of time it did with these people, and just like everything hits, like everything for me anyway, um, is really really good. the The only things I were I was gonna say, um, that as as a negative, why it's not like a five star movie for me, mm-hmm. um, is Christopher Nolan still has not either figured out how to or decided to write women, especially well, right. Um, it is bizarre to me that Emily Blunt got nominated for Best Actress, um, even though, or I'm sorry, Best Supporting Actress in fairly limited screen time with not a ton to do. Um, and there are not like 
many women they're like as you mentioned in the moment this would not pass the bechdel test like no 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 women talk to other women about anything um no. and they're 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 featured very briefly it's like oh you're the smart lady who knows chemistry you're in the back room with the chemists and like she speaks one more time like that's it mm-hmm. um there aren't really any people of color to speak of there's one woman who is uh briefly in the background of a classroom scene but like has no no lines Right. And this is a byproduct of who America was in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Of, of who what? America was. America. Like. Yeah, I mean, eh. I I think I think that you're right, right? Like I when when we were watching this I, in the moment, I I definitely did say this does not <laughs> Yeah. This does not come anywhere close to passing the Bechdel test, um, which I don't know for anybody who doesn't know what the Bechdel test is. It's just this uh, this idea that was conceived, I want to say, in the 1970s, which was basically from a comic strip, I want to say, where somebody was just saying like, hey, I don't watch movies that don't feature at least one woman talking to another woman about something that is not a man. Right. That's and uh, that is absolutely not happening here. And in fact, the thing that I I think I also told you afterward was, I think that if this were a play, you would have a lot of white men actors and you could get away with one woman playing all of the women parts because the women are never on the screen together and never talk to each other. Yeah, You could literally just have one woman do all the women speaking parts and never run into any kind of like continuity issues. Yeah. And and there's a decent amount of time between them appearing. So they could have plenty of time for a costume change. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, there, there was that. I think that the thing that I thought was, was particularly interesting, and I think it's, it's not that it's this time in America, but I think that we have this idea of, this time in America, and it was just all white people. And it's like, but there were not just white people, right? There were black people and brown people who were existing in the world and have been conveniently left out of the narrative. There was a mention, I think, for a moment of, hey, what are we going to do once the bomb launches? Oh, and I think Oppenheimer says the line. He's like, I thought we were just going to pack up so we could give the land back to the people. Oh, sure. Who yeah. it belongs to. Yeah. And the government's like, well, no, we have we have to make more of these things. They're like, no, nah, we got more bombs that we got to dust. Yeah. And that is alluding to this uh, entire other narrative of folks that I, I, I read about in some thread or, or something like that, where basically like the, the, for the, the indigenous people who were living on this land at this time, it was a little bit harrowing, right? They were basically removed from the land yeah, from where they had the ancestral land that they had been for thousands of years and, and, and taken away in the, like, I don't think it was a peaceful you know, right, version of, course, of that. Yeah. And so what you have then is you, you do have people who are not white that are around, but we're not talking about that because that's not interesting or it doesn't help the narrative along in the way. And I know that it's a long film. And the other thing too is I I think it sounds like I dislike the film. I I think that Nolan did a wonderful job. I think that the film is beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I think that I've, I'm almost coming at it from the opposite of of you, where I'm like, I think all these other things, but I also admit he did a great job. Yeah, I'm not yeah, going yeah. to deny 
the craftsmanship yeah, yeah. and the hard work and, and the, the, you know, the, what went into this film, because I, I see it. Yeah. But I also, to your point, think that he does just sort of have the problem of writing women or thinking even a little bit about the non-white yeah. main characters. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's important for a director to know what they should or shouldn't do, have in their, in their wheelhouse. Right. And it's like his last movie was Tenant. Tenant, the lead protagonist was John David Washington, black guy, Denzel Washington's son. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the film was not about race. Didn't really mention race. It was not a thing. Like sure, it's, it like it, it was not an intentional decision to um, exclude black people from the story necessarily in Tenant. But it was not a story about black people. If that makes sense. Yeah. And so and so I think what he is is. What I don't think he feels comfortable or like he has anything to say about that. Um, and I feel like in this world specifically where they took all of these scientists who many of which primarily existed or started their study in Europe in, in, in some places soon to be not Nazi occupied Europe um, and moved them to Los Alamos and sequestered them away from the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. It was possible to say the world existed in a way that they crafted it and did not include like black people or people of color. And in fact was uh, hostile to the indigenous people in the area. Right. Um, it, it is, it is possible to both say that, but also say like, but that's not what he was comf- capable of, of talking about in this movie. Like, I don't, you know what I mean? Like, I just don't think he's, he knows how to cross that bridge. <laughs> I, I think that's fair, but like to your point with Tenet, you know, he has other films that, yeah, like there was no reason why you had only white people in Inception. That is true. That's true. You know, and so I, I think that, or why you have one woman, and, and who is dead. now, huh? Who was dead? Oh, in Inception. In Inception. Uh, what's her face? Um, the the lady was dead. Right. Well, I guess I was at the time we thought that I guess there were two women, but Elliot Page also right. was in Inception as right. well. Right. And so it's like, um, I think that it just but it's again, it's it's one of those things where yeah. it, if you the subject matter that you choose is like, here's Oppenheimer, here's Dunkirk. Right. It's like I I get it. Yeah, I, I get why. But then it's just like. For me watching it, yeah, I'm just yeah. I'm just gonna be a little bored. I'm also gonna have a little bit of white dude face blindness yeah. unless you're getting <laughs> random and- <laughs> random dudes that I happen to know their faces yeah, already. For sure, for sure. Well, uh that being said, just to close out, yeah. Uh the actual IMAX film reel was eleven miles long and weighed okay. uh six hundred pounds. So the finished film printed on IMAX to be displayed at IMAX theaters uh, had to be moved by a forklift. Well, okay, wait. Uh, so like every single theater that played this had an 11 mile long film reel. Every that... single full IMAX theater that played this. Right. Like film, like 70 millimeter film IMAX. Yes. Correct. Did they, is it in pieces? How did they get in the door? Uh, How? How well, is it? It's, I'm just, they, maybe they roll I need, it up. <laughs> maybe I tight. need to watch a 
like a YouTube video on yeah. the logistics of an IMAX film. Yeah. That's so, possible. <laughs> yeah. So, so if you look at it, you yeah. know, you'll see like, you'll understand how they get it on the plates uh, uh, in, in olden, olden times. Right. And you'll, you would know this from watching fight club. Um, they would uh, do like a hot changeover between the, the two projectors. Right. So that you'd have one uh, reel going and then you'd switch it when the reel switches. Yeah. Although um, apparently the cigarette burn was just a, something that was made for the movie, right? We talked about that. In the one Fight in Club. Fight Club was made for the movie. Yeah. The one in real life really did exist. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. But um, but in this, I, I think now they stitch the whole thing together. It's not, you don't have to switch projectors. Okay. I also think having two IMAX projectors would be like insane. Um, there are only 30 of these screens in the country that would have had this particular film reel. So did you see it on IMAX? I saw it on IMAX, but it's digital IMAX, which is okay. a different, different thing. Sadly would have loved to have seen it on film in a full size IMAX. The best one in the country that I've ever been to is Lincoln center. In I was going to say in New York. Yeah. Yeah. That's where we saw interstellar. It's why I thought it was the greatest movie ever made when I saw it in person. <laughs> um, like it's, it's a, a fully encompassing experience. Um, this was also the, uh, Interesting little footnote is it was the highest grossing film in history that never reached number one at the domestic box office. Because it was always paired with Barbie. That's right. Barbie won, but Mm -hmm. uh, Oppenheimer still made a a bunch of money. So, you know, no no harm, no foul. Uh, But what I think is interesting is that Barbie was put up by Warner Brothers Mm -hmm. uh, and Christopher Nolan severed his relationship with Warner Brothers because he despised their release strategy for Tenant during the the pandemic. Okay. Um, basically, they did like a bare bones theatrical release, and then did what was basically a, a day and date uh, simultaneous release on HBO Max. Right. Um, yeah. And so once they did that, he was like, "Well, fuck this. We're going to go to Universal." Right. So this was his uh, first film uh, post Memento that was released by someone other than Warner Brothers. Uh, because I mean, he did all of the the Batmans too. That's right. So Warner Brothers is now uh, trying to woo him back into the fold, Mm. and they're doing a a Tenant re-release this year. So if anybody wants to see Tenant in theaters, go for it. I I would probably do that, but I mean, if I had time, I I wonder if you would just like what do you? Is there a, a a version of final like director's cut, but? Final cut but director's f- exhibition for yeah, but for like release, absolutely not, absolutely not. <laughs> Especially not like, when you're working with. I'm not going to come work with you unless you guarantee me that this is released exclusively in a theater for at least this amount of so, time. So yes, I mean they could. They I think he did actually yeah. with with um, Oppenheimer. He said to Universal, he was like, "This has to have theatrical release. I'm putting that in my contract. Yeah, if we're if we're working together, it has to have a theatrical release of a, at least this amount of time. Yeah." This many weeks in theaters. I mean, it's what Beyonce, um, not Beyonce, well, she did, but also Taylor Swift right. um, did with theirs. And they brought them directly to exhibitors, right? Right. And so they said, I think Taylor Swift said it had to be in for how what, many weeks? 13? Yes. that's. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so I don't know about Beyonce's deal, but like they, because they were acting as their own studio, for lack of a better word, right. making direct deals with distributors or ex- exhibitors, they could do whatever they wanted. Um, Nolan, I think, can make that deal with the studio. Those things are always under negotiation. If it starts to tank for whatever reason, then he can. If a they, global they can, pandemic starts to happen. Yeah. And I actually, like, I don't hold it against Warner Brothers for, like, their release for Tenant. Like, I wasn't going to theaters at that time anyway. Um, so I was like, yeah, I want to see it on my TV. Right. But uh, what Warner's has become under the stewardship of David Zaslav is, like, just awful. 
Right. It's just an awful company that doesn't care about art or, or industry. So the fact that he got out when he did makes sense to me. I saw a interview with Margot Roby where she, I think maybe she said, I don't know if it's Christopher Nolan who came to her or somebody came to her and they were basically like, Hey, so, you know, you're up against uh, my film. Uh, what do you think about pushing the date back? And she's like, I'm not going to push the date back. No, yeah. You can push the date back if you're afraid, but I am not moving the yeah. date of Barbie. Yeah. And uh, boy, that made me love her even more. Yeah. I also think it was great for both films. Like it, it turned out, I think Barbie got some lift right. from being paired with Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer got a huge lift from being paired with Barbie. Mm-hmm. My screening of Oppenheimer, I had, I said kids, but they were like in their 20s. Just people in their 20s behind me in the row behind me. And like there were six to eight of them, and, you know, and in a little a group. And they were all wearing pink. Yeah. So you knew they were doing the, the double feature. And like just overhearing them talk, one of one of the, the women was like, um, Oh, are you on Letterboxd? You should totally get on Letterboxd. <laughs> Here, I'll add you. And like, I'm just like, yes, this is what we want. We want a bunch of people who are dressed in pink going to see Barbie to be really excited about another event style movie and to plan their day around it and to have conversations about it and share their interests with their friends. Like, that's what movies used to be. Like, the, the chart that you showed me of like 1991, the Doomsday Clock getting closer and closer to midnight as we've gotten further along, also echoes echoes the way like we experience movies nowadays. Sure. It used to be super important. Everything that happened in the theater was what you talked about that weekend. Right. You would come into your school or your office, I assume, on, on a Monday in 1992 and be like, oh, what did you just see? Wasn't that cool? I can't believe Sandra Bullock did this or whatever it was. And it's like, we don't have that like monoculture. I was going to say monoculture. Right. Yeah. So I think that there, you know, there were a couple of huge things for monoculture this year, obvi- this well, within the past calendar yeah. year, yeah, which was obviously Barbenheimer and, and the Super Bowl was kind of yeah. as close to like the monoculture that, that we've gotten kind of recently. Yeah. Um, where it used to be very common. Um, Game of Thrones is gone. You know, yeah. but you used to have things that everybody talked about and yeah. that is just no longer the case. Yeah. It's, we're all, all divided across all these different streaming platforms and it's just fragmented. It's just so fragmented. There's yeah. so much content. And yeah. I think that there has been this huge proliferation of content. I mean, we've talked, this is a different conversation, but like there is going to be a natural culling of the amount of content based off of the negotiations that we had from the yeah. writer strikes yeah. and a little bit, maybe there should be because yeah. there's been too much money thrown yeah. at too many projects and not enough money at any individual project. That's right. And also like no, no understanding of how people actually want to experience things, which is like Netflix is the punching bag here. So I'll just use them. But like the idea of we're going to invest in this show for a season and then we're going to give it a, a follow-up for a second season. And just when people start to get interested, we're going to cancel it. Right. And we're going to do that over and over again. Right. So what you're doing is you are taking your quote unquote content and commoditizing it. So it's no longer the fact that you're watching something specific, something with an artistic vision or direction. It is that you are just watching whatever they're going to put on. They, they assume they put something new up, they put it in their brand new releases, people watch it and then they move on and like, there's no connection to it. But it's like, I wonder how many people's attention they have lost by just not giving them 
the the expectation that the show they care about will continue. You know? Oh yeah, I don't get saying, invested. Yeah. I don't get invested in dramas or any kind of serialized yeah. show on Netflix. And I'm not saying it has not. to go on forever, but like you know, I think Breaking Bad was like six seasons. It's like great, six seasons. Like, or if it if if it warrants that, like, talk to the showrunners and be like, how many seasons do you see this going? And only adopt things that you think have a good arc if that's what you're gonna if that if that's the way you're gonna do it. Shows don't need to go on for ten seasons. But not every show needs to be Friends. Yeah, but. I think it could be closer to what they have over in 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 London or yeah. in the UK, where you just there there is an expectation for three seasons, but know that from the start. Yeah, know from the start that the, you have a three season arc. Yeah, and that's the beginning and the end of it, right? Yeah, this is quite a tangent. I, yeah, I know, I know, but but it, it, I think it's it's important because as we come up to the Oscars and we see the big. Best Picture nominees: Oppenheimer, um, Barbie. I'm trying to think of like if there were any, maybe the holdovers because it's on streaming or whatever. The three that we've covered, maybe Poor Things, even though it's not out on on whatever yet. Like we're seeing, like all ten of these movies that are nominated are really good. They're very good movies, mm-hmm. and like Anatomy of a Fall, really hard to see. Zone of Interest, really hard to see. Like I said, Poor Things not coming out on VOD until the twenty seventh. Um, uh, trying to think of like some of the other ones that. Well, the are one that nominated. we saw in the film in the theater. Oh, in the, past lives. Past yeah. lives was was quite good, and that actually is available on streaming for anybody yeah. who's interested in checking that out. It was, a, it was a very, um, it's a, it's a, it's not a huge budget. It's no. a mid size, maybe low, like m- m- low budget film, yeah. but just for for how simple it is, but a great script excellent yep. directing and writing and you know i think a, a film that's just done really well yeah and then american fiction uh which was also it's it's on vod now but didn't come out until you know mid-february in vod and was hard to find in theaters um maestro was a netflix release but like i don't think it, it was incredibly popular um killers of the flower moon got a wide release but i don't know how many people saw it um it's like so so even though we have it's kind of the opposite effect, maybe, of what the Academy intended when they grew the number of films that were nominated to 10. When it was five, you might assume that people had seen those five. You know? It's like, right. Look, I, most Americans see four movies a year. I think that's the average. So you're getting close if you're nominating five. When you get to 10, you're throwing in some foreign films. You're throwing in some, like, films that didn't come out until December the 28th or whatever. It's like... Yeah. We're just, we're asking people to do a lot. And so- Well, I saw I, the Eras film twice and Barbie twice in theaters. So that checks. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so I, you know, my, my, my big thought is it was a nice experience to see the Barbenheimer phenomenon. Right. I don't think it's something that's easy to replicate. And I think Hollywood's going to try and They are fail. wanting to, they are wanting to real yeah. hard. And they're, they're going to miss- because I think what you have to do is like start to bring the culture back to the movies of giving people things that they that are they're, they're not expecting. I think that well, and, and to that point, you know, they're going to try, but the ninety percent of of content, ninety five percent of content that's released on in theaters at this point is based off of a or is based off of previous IP. Yeah, and Barbenheimer was also unique in yeah. that there was no. Despite hmm, despite what the Golden Globes and however other people decide to um, list Barbie 
as yeah. being um, adapted. A, an adapted screenplay. It was an original screenplay, as was Oppenheimer. Yeah. Like they were not. There's no, you know, yeah. franchise right. basically that either of those films was based off of. But, they were. I think it's different than that. There, yeah. I mean, because because there were. I mean, Barbie was based off of intellectual property, the the Barbie toy line, and uh, Oppenheimer was based off of a, a best selling, um, you know, nonfiction uh, book. Right. But. They were things that people did not know about. Like one was because the Barbie story was crafted from whole cloth. The other was because Oppenheimer is just a story that not a lot of people follow because why would you, you know, unless you're a history buff. And so it was like, oh, I can, I can see something that I'm not expecting. Whereas like the other stuff that you're talking about is like the Marvel and the DC universe and all the comic book movies and stuff where it's like, oh, I get to see Spider-Man in his fourth movie. I kind of know what I'm going to get from Spider-Man. And moreover, it's like, oh, I have to watch fill in the blank. Uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. Right. Well, I have to see 24 movies before I'm going to know what they're talking about. And then that's all to set up the next movie. It's not like, okay, they meet Kang, but Kang's not going to be important until the Avengers Kang Dynasty, which is in two years from now. It's like, ugh, I don't want to fucking do homework for a movie. Right. Like, Oppenheimer is three hours. The Marvel Cinematic Universe is 200 hours, like including television shows and stuff like that. Like, right. It's, it's just a different math, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that people are tired of doing the, the, the Marvel slash DCU math. So mm-hmm. um, my hope is that what that leads to is more films by our, our artistically driven directors about projects that they care about and, and connect with. And that'll be better for everyone, both the industry and the viewer. Anyway, we've gone long. <laughs> Sorry. I've, a little I've been, bit long. I have been, uh, I've been uh, vamping for the last, last little bit here. But uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Please uh, go see Oppenheimer at your local Peacock streaming service. I was like, where are they going to go see Oppenheimer, darling? <laughs> yeah, they might do a limited release or something before the Oscars, but uh, no, I, it's on streaming now. You can see it on Peacock if you are a subscriber. You can also buy the, the 4K Blu-ray. It's available. Go watch it um, and prep yourself for probably what will be a big night for them on March the 10th. It's going to be a real blowout. Hey, you were saving that one up. I was not. <laughs> yeah. Right oh, okay. off the dome, man. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> our, our dog knows what it means to end a podcast. She just stood up and yawned and shaked her head. She's ready to go. She she literally knows what our, our sign-off is. And she was like, all right, we're done. Uh, anyways, thank you, everybody. Uh, yeah, find us on uh, Instagram and threads. We are at the Crosscut Pod. And, uh, yeah, we'll talk to you guys uh, in a couple weeks. All right. Bye. Bye.